0: Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm your host, Agas Ramirez. Before we begin, I'd like to take the time to share a couple of very cool things that happened this month. First, Her Story Southeast Asia was a finalist at the Asia Podcast Festival Awards held in Singapore in December four. Our category was Best Arts, Society, and Culture Podcast. The winner was ultimately Misconduct, an Indian true crime podcast with Ragavi and Nisha, linked in the description. Please do check them out as they are doing excellent work in spotlighting women's stories in their unique and often humorous way. Second, the podcast was featured on the South China Morning Post, print edition on december 10 under podcast highlights by jared watt this is just the second time the show has been featured in a mainstream newspaper the first was of course in the Straits times article filipinos find podcasts to be in tune with their culture by raul danzel in august last year it's been an exciting year and while my uploads have not been as consistent as i want them to be i just want to thank everyone for being here More and better things are coming, I promise. If you want more Her Story, go over to the Patreon and join Karen, Keiro, Xiaomi, Jennifer, Christina, Raul, Raymond, Matt, Ashley, Charlie, and Yati, who have been supporting the show and have made it possible to upgrade the microphone. Alright, so those are all my updates. On to the show! In this episode, we're going to talk about the Black and White Amaz. Chinese women from the southern provinces of China who emigrated to the Straits settlements in the Malay states in the 1930s and established themselves as domestic servants par excellence.
1: If this was good speak-
0: Crazy Rich Asians, right? If you've been obsessed with the books and the movie like I've been, you probably know the different sets, costumes, references. If you remember the first ever episode of Her Story Seapod, we played a clip of Astrid Leong buying Queen Subiela's earrings. On a recent trip to Penang, Malaysia, one of the places I absolutely wanted to see was the Chong Bad si Blue Mansion on number 14, Leith, Georgetown. This was where Michelle Yeoh, as Eleanor, walked into the mahjong session only to find Rachel Chu waiting to confront her one last time. This is where our story starts today, because on the second floor, in one of the exhibits about the former inhabitants of the mansion, there is a panel depicting women in a very distinct uniform. This is what it says. The Famed Black and White amaz the first sisterhood of women from China who chose to leave their homes for strange and foreign lands rather than be married off at a young age and be subservient to their husband's family. They devoted their entire lives as nannies and cooks for wealthy European and Chinese families and retired to shared sisterhood homes bought with their hard-earned savings. Most were from Guangdong province and were impeccably attired in uniforms of white tops and black pants. Of course, it's impossible to fit nuance in a little exhibit blurb like this, but I think you'll agree that it's just begging for an episode. So here we are, and off we go. During the Qing Dynasty, which lasted up to 1912, Chinese women couldn't really emigrate even if they wanted to. There was an imperial decree against it, and social norms pretty much confined them to the home. According to Dr. Wee Kiat Jin, much of the latter had to do with ancestor worship. Living descendants tended to the spirits of the dead through various rituals, and deserting them was only done under desperate circumstances, for example, to find work elsewhere. In cases where men had to leave, women tended to the ancestors. Their Confucian duty was to serve the home and give birth to male children, preferably. So it was mostly Chinese men who came to Nanyang, or Southeast Asia, to become sinke, or indentured laborers. Obviously, they often didn't make enough to support a family. In the 1930s, though, things changed. Because of the Kuomintang communist conflict and the Second Sino-Japanese War, life became harder and harder, and the Chinese had to set aside their filial traditions to survive. Many of them figured British Malaya was a pretty good option as it was relatively peaceful and stable. But in 1933, the British passed the Aliens Ordinance of Malaya to regulate the admission of immigrants, mostly male immigrants. The cost for women to migrate to Malaya was much cheaper, and until 1938, there wasn't even a quota at all. It's said that shiploads of Cantonese women arrived to make money for their families. But while their families encouraged them to go, they also urged them to become Chushunu, to swear before the goddess Kuan Yin to remain spinsters. See, if they married, their earnings would go to their husbands, and their families would get nothing. If they married, they would be urged to become poluchia, to not sleep for their husbands in both senses of the word. Between 1933 and 1938, around 190,000 women came to Malaya, and those who could became the black and white amas, amami meaning elder sister in Cantonese. So, the year is 1933, and a Chinese woman arrives in Penang. For our purposes, we'll call her Do Tai. She's young, around 18 years old. She's nervous, hopeful, ready for this new life that would set her apart from most women in her old village. What does she do first? Well, she would either find friends or relatives or register with a kongsi Pang, our lodging house, where she could stay until she found work. Kongsipangs were typically two-story houses with four or five rooms, rented out at low rates. They were either run by female laborers, who were then known as coolies, which is a controversial word, of course, or amas themselves, who managed it like a cooperative. If the Kongsipang was run by a female laborer, she would typically have stable renters, families who would be there for months or even years, She would have just one room for the constant stream of Amaz. As many as 10 of them would share a room if there were many arrivals or if they were between jobs. Conditions were pretty rough, with so many people sharing bathrooms and bad ventilation, limits imposed on electricity and water. But like I said, they don't usually stay there for long. They would move on to their employers' houses as stay-in nannies. When the Amas would run the houses, it was typically better. That's because the Amas would stay at their employers' houses during the day and go back to their house at night, so it was really more of a home for them. In both cases, the pangs performed important roles beyond lodging. First, the heads of these houses would advise new arrivals of local culture and the type of behavior expected from them, which was, of course, loyalty and hard work. They discouraged them from interacting with men and other ethnic groups. Second, they acted as placement agencies. Some employers would even visit the Kongsipang to find a new ama. Amas preferred referrals, though. They wanted to know what they were getting into based on other women's previous experiences. European families were the preferred clients, but eventually they went to work with more and more Chinese families when the British withdrew from Malaya. Third, these houses also became meeting places where they could exchange news from home or just hang out on their days off. It became their social network too, which was key to their survival in an entirely new country. Fourth, Kongsipangs also played a role later in life when they retired. More on that later. Let's say Doh Tai rented a spot at the Kongsipang run by a female laborer. She stays there for a couple of weeks until she finds an employer. She then moves to a big double-story house called Ang Molao in Hokkien. That means European bungalow, and you can still find them today, usually repurposed as boutique hotels or fine dining restaurants. On Jalan Sultan Ahmed Shah, there's the mansion built by tin miner Leong Yin Kian and Hardwick Hall built by lawyer Lim Cheng Yen. There's also Francis Light's former residence, Suffolk House, Francis Light is known as the founder of Penang, although you know how we feel about these terms with regards to colonization. After the break, we'll follow Do Tai's journey from the Kongsipang to the Ang Molao. You've heard of the terms colonization or decolonization in bits and pieces. But do you find European colonization too broad and too complicated to get into? Well, there is now a podcast for you. Join me, Fidelity, on an introduction through the history of colonization. We will cover not just the major wars and conquests that took place, but also the perspectives of people who have been neglected in the grand Eurocentric narrative of discovery and colonial lens. You can find the History of Colonization podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast from.
1: I'm still in love with your eyes My heart still beats for you like it used to All I ask is one more try
0: As she begins her new job, dōtai changes from her travel clothes into black satin trousers and a white cotton top. In most photos, amas had their long hair pulled back into a single braid that ran down their back or in a bun at the base of their neck, probably because these were practical ways to keep their hair out of their face throughout their long days. Dr. Yat Jin writes in a footnote that according to a former amas, The color of the top was not always white. Sometimes they were gray or blue, but the trousers were always black. The family she works for probably has young children. We can imagine her being in charge of babysitting an infant. Affluent Chinese families often had an ama for each child. When she's not babysitting, Dotai would do everything else, from going to the market to cooking, sweeping, and cleaning the entire house. She would do this for the next 10 to 15 years. Sometimes, Amas stay with a single family until they retire at age 65. So here we have Dotai. In black and white, she was probably a little stern. Highly professional, she did not need to be supervised. In fact, she did most of the supervising. She disciplined the children. Some employers were even said to be a little scared of their amas. Children, of course, developed a strong relationship with them. They loved and feared their amas and often grew closer to them than their own parents. The amas would become very attached to and would treat the household as their own. Over time, someone like Dotai would be regarded not as hired help but as a member of the family. At the end of the month, Do Tai would get $5 to $15. This is significant because male servants would demand up to $30 a month. So eventually, most families preferred female servants who, yes, worked for less. She would send some of this money to her relatives in China and also use it to prepare for retirement. She would be thrifty in all respects, and while she would keep up with what was happening back home, she would only visit a few more times, for weddings or funerals. She would remain unmarried. The outright rejection of marriage was actually a distinct trait shared by a majority of Amaz. Claire Lowry had a great term for it, a history of radical marriage resistance. According to Marjorie Topley, from the early 19th to the early 20th century, numbers of women in a rural area of the Canton Delta either refused to marry or having married refused to live with their husbands typically they organized themselves into sisterhoods that tradition of sisterhood lived on as you will see later in a study by ho ichong the cantonese domestic ama her informants gave the following reasons for staying unmarried one they were afraid of becoming a slave whether by their husband or their in-laws two They didn't want to bear children partly because of the very real possibility of dying in childbirth, which they believed brought great punishment after death. 3. They didn't want to marry the wrong type of man who would abuse them. And 4. They didn't want to become second or third wives, as polygamy was the norm among Chinese men at the time. While they themselves didn't want to bear children, they would often adopt a daughter, housed with a couple while she was working. She would provide for all her needs, including schooling, and even arranged for her marriage. Why a daughter? Because female children were considered more loyal and dependable, and more likely to take care of their adoptive mother in retirement. Reminds me of that episode about girlhood in colonial Manila with Talawong. Check out that episode if you haven't yet. Many Amas were illiterate but would eventually be able to read and write simple Chinese or speak English as a result of working for English families. On her days off, she would visit her former Kongsipang or become friends with another network of Amas. Then she would return to the Ang Mo Lao to resume her place as the domestic servant par excellence. And so it would go on for years, then decades, until it finally came time to retire. Imagine you're Do tai, 65 years old, you have no family by blood anymore, having stayed single all your life, you have some savings you don't want to or can't return to your hometown in China. You have a couple of options. First, you could retire to your Kong Sipang. If you visit Penang, you can visit Love Lane, where a few Kongsipang can be found. This is very near the Chong Blue Mansion. Most of the Kongsipang are located in the old parts of Georgetown, and they are becoming increasingly rare as the old occupants have already passed away. Amas who wanted more freedom and independence opted to join their sisters in a Kongsipang or collectively rent a house and share expenses and chores. And of course, having lived a life of hard work, many of them couldn't really stay idle. One retired Amas who was unnamed by Dr. Wee but was a close friend of his family, lived alone in a rented room. She made a living by selling Chinese New Year cakes, performing rituals for the sick, attending to funeral rites, praying for good health for people during festive occasions, providing services at weddings, cooking for home parties, and cleaning houses. Second, if you were more devout, you could go to a chai tang. In most large towns in Malaya, there were institutions called chai tang or vegetarian halls, these were residences for both local and immigrant Amas. A typical resident would be a middle-aged or elderly vegetarian woman who was a devotee of Kuan Yin, the goddess of mercy. One example is the Four Thai Institution at Jalan Bagan Jarmal, which also has a school for girls, a female orphanage, and a temple. In order to live at the Chaitang, the retired ama or her employer would deposit a lump sum or pay in installments. Those who didn't have money to give rendered their services instead, managing the grounds and preparing food for others, for example. As is implied, the residents were required to become vegetarian, which was not a huge adjustment for the most part because most amas already had a vegetarian diet every 1st and 15th day of the Chinese lunar calendar. Residents were free to come and go as long as they did the domestic chores assigned to them and observed religious responsibilities like prayers and honoring celebrations like Wusak, the birthday of deities. Their lives at the Chaitang were relatively peaceful with most of their time spent in meditation and prayer, though they were not considered nuns. They were also free to accept gifts from their former employers. Some vegetarian houses had death benefit schemes which required monthly payments of a premium and upon death entitled them to a decent funeral equipped with a band and a guaranteed body of mourners. This was very important because if you had no family, you were probably not going to get a Chinese burial. Being in the Tang guaranteed against that. In the 70s and 80s, live-in domestic service became less attractive to local women, especially since there were more opportunities for work. But that doesn't mean there was no demand, of course. Families still needed help, especially young urban working couples. So they began to employ young women from the Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, and Sri Lanka with short-term contracts. The year is 2020. A very old woman is sitting in a wheelchair in the Peace and Harmony home on Jalan Thomas in Pinang. She's wearing a white blouse and black trousers. Her gray hair is gathered in a bun at the back of her neck. She's smiling at someone off camera. This is the real Dotai, not the fictional one we were following in this episode, though she probably went through many of the same things we talked about. Her full Cantonese name is Ngan Dotai. She's known as Malaysia's last living ama. Probably born around 1915, she would have come to Penang as a teenager in search of a new life. It's assumed that she served families in Penang most of her life. In the 1970s, she was recorded as helping out at a temple on Burma Road. She would have been a decade from retirement at that point. Eventually, she came to live in the home on Jalan Thomas. She doesn't remember much about where she came from. She lost her identity card decades ago and her fingerprints can no longer be scanned because they're worn out from work and age. Still, according to the article about her on the South China Morning Post, she hoped to reconnect with her family in China. I couldn't find any more recent article about her but I really hope she got her wish. At the 68th Venice International Film Festival in 2011, Anne Weis' film A Simple Life about a Hong Kong ama named Sister Peach won four awards, including Best Actress for Dini Ip. The film, based on a true story, follows an unmarried, middle-aged Hong Kong film producer as he cares for his elderly ama until her final days, showcasing her tenacity and the impact that she made on him and her family. While this episode certainly seems less heartbreaking than most others we've done in the past, it's important to remember that these fascinating women, these Amas, still endured so much difficulty throughout their lives. But they made the most of what they had and turned to each other for support, and for the most part, succeeded in claiming and maintaining their independence at a time when it was very difficult for an unmarried woman to do so. They made their own way, and they made their mark, and they were a class all their own. There's a lot to learn from their stories, even for us, especially for us, who are still trying to make our way in the world. That's it for episode 21, The Black and White Amaz of Penang. The beautiful song in this episode is Penang Hill by Malaysian singer-songwriter R.J. Kevin. You'll find his links in the description, and I'll play the rest of the song at the end. If you want to join the Patreon, you can give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and access to bonus episodes. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pod. That's HerStory, Pod. There are so many more stories to tell, and we're just getting started. This podcast was hosted and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Sampai jumpa lagi.
1: If the stars they could see they tell.